With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Tennis.com podcast, and here's your host, Ed McGrogan. Hey everyone, latest Tennis.com podcast. I'm here with Steve Tigner, back from Australia, Pete Bodo, and I'm Ed McGrogan. Uh, I want to talk about a couple of topics on an unusually busy week, perhaps in February. Um, it, it does seem like we have a little more to talk about than usual. Uh, that's, of course, owing to Nadal coming back. We'll get to that in a bit. I wanted to start, though, with... Um, Arthur Ashe, who 20 years ago today, uh, this is Wednesday the 6th, passed away. Um, obviously, for, for so many reasons, uh, such a, an important figure in tennis and beyond. Pete, I, I am certain that, and I hope you'll take no offense, that I think you've probably had many interactions with, with Mr. Ashe throughout your career. So I was Based curious, on age alone, right? <laughs> based on esteem alone. Um, so... Just, I kind of want to know really what you, what do you remember from kind of uh, either talking with him or watching him? Because I'm sure we'd like to know about that. Well, he was he was really good. To, he was he was he was fun to talk to because he was so learned and knowledgeable. And basically, you know, he was he was a good listener in addition to everything else, which you know, which isn't always a case of people who are big celebrities mingling with you know with with everyone else. And we used to drive up and down occasionally to Connecticut, where Tennis Magazine offices originally were. And we both lived in New York City. We'd go up together and talk and of just you know talk about everything and he was very very he was just he's such a grounded person you know everybody talks about you know his education initiatives and his famous thing about you know pointing out what percentage of, of african-american kids could expect to go on to play pro sports as as a means of stressing education and things and so the egghead aspect of arthur was always stressed but you know he was he was a guy who liked to talk about everything he liked to talk about regular sports you know he he was very knowledgeable about sort of just basically popular culture and stuff and he was and he was easy to talk to he was not at all a professorial guy he was a little bit aloof and i think i think that was something that was always true of arthur in his career but you know he had a lot of for, forbearance too he handled Ilya Anastasi beautifully and Ilya Anastasi used to use a word that today if you used it if you'd called arthur Negroni, like he used to, he'd be you know raked over the coals as a racist. Ash understood that he got along with Nastasi. Pretty much got along with everybody. He was did, a wonderful did, man. did you used to? I mean, were those for particular pieces you were doing these travels back and forth, or what are some of the specific uh, things you covered of him? You know, on ter- possibly on tournaments as well. Well, Arthur, Arthur basically, Arthur was uh, you know consulted with our magazine. Actually, was an instruction editor for us. You know, and and did instruction pieces. You know, this is another way the world has changed so much. At that time, the top players you worked with them. Pete Sampras was another one. He was on board at Tennis Magazine. You'd go to the office and there was Pete Sampras, you know, not that he was there a lot or anything, but still, you know, the, you know, there were, the relationships were different. Now, you know, there's no entourage. I mean, the idea of, you know, me driving to Connecticut today with Roger Federer for a meeting is just, you know, 
just it's not going to happen. You know, it's because the, the entourages, car service, the whole nine yards. So it's, it's a different world. My favorite anecdote with Arthur, and I did write this in my book, uh, Courts of Babylon, is was when uh, I found myself standing next to him. And this was shortly after he, he divulged he'd had AIDS. And we were watching a tennis court, watching Jimmy Connors playing. And uh, I'm going to have to clean the language up a little bit this time. But, I mean, so, you know, we were watching him play and just chatting. And I turned to Arthur and I said, so, Arthur, tell me what you really think. Is is Jimmy Connors really as much of a jerk? I'm going to use the word jerk mm-hmm. as, he's, as he seems to be, as many people think. And kind of looked at me, cocked his head, and he said, yeah, Jimmy is a jerk. But he's my favorite jerk, <laughs> and, and that was it. And that was kind of a very—that's very nice, Arthur Ashe anecdote because it shows that he his his mental ability to separate things. He wasn't just a person who hated or loved or whatever. He understood things. He he still sorely missed. What a Steve. What about um? You know, you've written a lot recently about Arthur and players in his era for your book, High Strong. Get another book plug in here too. Um, what about? Ash's game, like, can you describe a little bit of some of the things you think about his tennis? Because, you know, for me, and I think for a lot of other younger listeners, it 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 doesn't pop off the head. You know, this is how Ash played. You know, going with some of the today's contemporaries. Right. Well, going along with what Pete was saying about how things have changed, my favorite Ash story, along those lines, is he won a tournament in Washington D.C. in the mid '70s, and at the end of his trophy speech, he um he said. Anybody who wants to give me a call, give me a call, and he, and he read out his phone number, his, um, his, you know, his phone number that was in the book. Right over the PA. If you can imagine that. If you can imagine, you know, Roger Federer doing that now. But um, as far <laughs> get as a lot of calls. <laughs> as far as his game, um, from what I can see and what I've when I've read and, and heard about about him was, you know, he was this grounded and fairly conservative guy. Not a conservative guy, but you know, very controlled person but but his game wasn't like that at all his game was very much slash and dash you know hit hit hard hit he had a huge you know he had a huge serve he served and volleyed um and he played with you know not recklessly but he did play with that edge it's interesting the, his most famous match against Jimmy Connors in the 75 Wimbledon he completely played the opposite way he watched Connors play the semifinals against Tanner and he saw Connors destroy the huge server right. yeah yeah he saw Connors destroy Tanner by with his counter punching, and he realized just watching that match that he could never go with power against Connor. So he he did the opposite. He went and played a real finesse match, a real masterful sort of tactical match, and and really um, bamboozled Connors and, and upset him in four sets. But after that, people expected him to continue with that type of game and to and to maybe to to mix it up more. But he didn't. He went back to the way he really liked to play, which was it was, was just tactics game. for that one that specific one event. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Best righty slice ever with that. You ever play with that yeah. racket, Steve? That, that canoe paddle head racket that he, that he played yeah, with? Yeah, yeah, the competition. The head comp. But there's some great YouTube videos of him. There's one of him winning the 68 U.S. Open. His serve was an amazing thing. He was a, he was a fun player to watch. And how did he fare in, in, at the U.S. Open over, uh, overall? Only player ever to win it as a pro and an amateur. Yeah, he yes. won it the same year, 68, yeah. amateur and pro. Yeah. Well, we did want to get some words on... Arthur there. Steve has a, a nice piece sent him up today. I suggest you guys take a look at that. Um, and obviously wanted to get your two thoughts for working or being with him for many of your parts of your career, sir. So um, turning to modern tennis or uh, today's tennis, I really should say, let's, let's go to Nadal while we brought him up in the beginning. Um, 
He played a doubles match yesterday. He's going to start a singles today down in Vina del Mar, Chile. Played doubles yesterday with Juan Monaco, um, two and three, I believe, over actually a pretty good doubles team, Delui and Cermak, I think. Mm-hmm. Ooh, checks. Um, what, did you? I know Steve, you watched that. Did you get anything out of that, or is it kind of just I thought really he looked good? A, a, you know, it's a doubles match, and those two guys are superior players. But I thought Nadal played well. His hands were good at the net. You would think he might be a little rusty, especially around the net, where he's not. It's not what he's known for. But he was, he was good up there. He hit his forehand for winners. And what about the what about the movement? Seemed to be moving fine to me. I mean, he's you know playing half a court there. He said he was, he's still in pain, but that he's not so worried about it now. I guess the doctors have told him he should he should be fine. He's not making it worse. I've you know I've never really noticed even in the matches where he's said he's like the Rasal match last year where he had knee pain. I never really noticed him moving any differently, and I didn't notice anything this time either. He looked fine to me. You know, I don't understand. He's it's been seven months. I mean. You know, there have been other knee injuries. I mean, Adrian Peterson, the Minnesota Vikings, you know, obviously had surgery, comes back, has a career year, MVP year after having serious, you know, surgery and stuff. And, you know, here's Nadal seven months later after being out, and he's still saying, oh, he's got pain. He's not sure it's going to react. And, you know, he hasn't even played a competitive match with the stress that entails. I just just find the whole thing very hard to, to fathom. The only thing I can think is that, He's almost like obsessive about avoiding surgery, and therefore he's relying on all these therapies that may not be doing a job. Because I mean, I mean, seven months later, he ought to be in pretty good shape. Kind of know one way or the other where it's going. Yeah, it, it it's a thing where he hasn't. It's baffling to me. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, it's a thing where he hasn't bit the bullet on on that regard. Like taking those, you know, that's what you wrote about yesterday about Nadal there um, toward the end of your piece, really relying on sort of. Um, Homegrown uh, tactics just to, just to get back here, and um, and we'll see where this goes. I mean, what are your expectations for Rafa this? First of all, this month here in South America, and really, second of all, this year. Um, you know, his first, assuming he plays all year, of course, which is no guarantee. Well, I think if his knee's okay, he'll be fine. If it's not, it's not. What's what's you know what's a little bit I don't know. Disappointing is the wrong word, I guess. But what's what's frustrating for me is that you don't know whether his knee's okay or not because he doesn't know. So here we are, you know. So almost like it's back. We're back to square one. So yeah, if, if his knee's in good shape, he's going to be fine. If his knee degenerates from playing matches, or if it can't handle the stress of the renewed full commitment, then he won't be fine. The only other option I think maybe is that he's looking because he was pretty disgruntled, you know, uh, about the tour and about the commitments and stuff. You know, I mean, I don't know, Steve, if you think he he would actually just set this up so he could take more time off. I wouldn't. I don't think he'd consciously do that, but it certainly must be inviting for him to just, you know, sort of cut back at, at some level. Yeah, I think he's he's clearly gone to more clays. Ambitious this month with three straight tournaments. That's more than I would have thought for somebody who's feeling pain in their knees. But that that must be simply because he wants to get on clay whenever he can now, which would indicate to me that he's he'd be willing to shift his his um schedule towards clay permanently and and even if it means abandoning sort of the post US open part of the year which he's never liked and which he he's all he's lobbied for the master series to be taken out of that part of the year you actually said in in a chat yesterday someone was asking you about you know what hard court events what hard court masters events specifically do you anticipate Nadal playing this year i mean even someone like Federer isn't going to be playing Miami and it's certainly 
conceivable to see Nadal doing, you know, kind of just taking one of those two in March in the summer. That's that's an even dicier time for Nadal. Traditionally, he many times has not played both Canada and Cincinnati there. And then, of course, after the Open, that's always I'll just crapshoot who's going to play there. I mean, is it a thing where you think he'll be lopping off a significant amount of those tournaments? I guess I think we'll see. Um, I think it's definitely a possibility. I know he likes Indian Wells. Whether he wants to play a fourth tournament virtually in a row at that point on hard courts, I don't know. And, and we'll see how much he, I mean, maybe he'll test it out, his hard court game at Indian Wells and see how he feels from there. But I think now that he, after missing the Olympics, I feel like that made him realize he really does have to do something drastic so he doesn't miss the big events so he's not forced to miss things like Wimbledon and the Olympics and the US Open and that, if that means even if that means missing a significant amount of other tournaments the one thing that's kind of interesting too there is that he the one thing I, I totally think buy into his feeling on this is that you know he says that he really wants to he complains about not about having to play X amount to be able to be ranked sort of where he is or to be in a mix where he is and somehow I don't think that he would like just play Roland Garros you know, and Wimbledon and then sort of find excuses to play a little bit less for the rest of the year. Because unless he totally do- dominates those, you know, it, it's going to leave him really behind the eight ball in terms of ranking and stuff. And I really do think that means something. He doesn't want to be number four, number five with the great, with, you know, with the Roland Garros title every year. That's that's one thing I'm. Yeah, I don't think about. he's going to just play clay. I think. The Grand Slams really mean still mean a lot to him, and I think even though he had to miss the Australian Open this year, I think he wants to keep himself healthy for those, for those tournaments. Yeah, the the ranking thing for Nadal is going to come up very soon once we hit those bigger clay events, specifically Roland Garros, and depending on where he shakes out. But I do think if if his knee is fine, I don't see why he's not the favorite in the clay season already. You know, I, I don't see any reason oh, yeah, why he's be. why he's not already the favorite at the French Open as long as. And we're back to fun. red clay in Madrid. Wait, did he ask for protected right. ranking, by the way, or or no? Well, I don't. Th- I mean, I don't. You're talking about at Roland Garros. Was he eligible for well for for ranking protection because of his time off? I think that's how it works. Um, I know there's a, an amount of time you have to be out to qualify. I think for that exemption, mm-hmm. I don't know if seven months is meets that standard or not. We'll have to look that up. Yeah, um, but. And and we'll see. Like I was saying, there, you know, the seven-time champion at the French Open could be, you know, not even in the top four seeds, depending on how things shake out these next few months. Well, that's going to be a huge story going into that Slam. I want to end with a, a couple of other topics that have been uh, coming up this week in the in the tennis news. Um, guy who will be at all the hard court events, Andy Murray. Um, he had an interesting comment yesterday, two days ago. Um, asserting that, first of all, that uh, one of the reasons he's not going to be able to play Davis Cup is he's really centering on his potential to win the French Open, which I thought was an, was um, you know an, kind of a, a next logical step for someone who's really assuming his place in the top two just about at this point and per- perhaps a future number one. But the, the bigger comment that he had was about um, – was about doping and you know, it's gotten so much publicity in all sports recently. And he's really taken a stance um, to a new level for tennis saying that the ATP and the players, it's, it's an issue of money than resources that tennis is not have the best possible um, 
safeguards against this. And he's and he suggested even that players, um, some of their earnings should be even lopped away to help fund these anti-doping efforts. There, it seems like a far-fetched thing for as I, as we discussed earlier, players that aren't making incredible prize money. But what do you think of the claim at at I'm just at, amazed. At, at I'm base amazed value? at Murray's um, turnaround. This was a guy who who always complained publicly about when he was drug tested earlier, when somebody would show up for a random drug test earlier in the, mor- early in the morning, he would tweet about it. He um, complained in a press conference once about having to take a blood test right after losing the Australian Open final. Um, and now he's completely turned around the other way. He wants more blood tests. He wants more random tests. He wants, he wants to give potentially some of his money to make it happen. So something's happened. I don't, I don't know if it's just the Lance Armstrong thing that that's had, had that big an effect, but something's really turned him around on this issue. And it's, it is, like you said, the, I think it's the most significant. Um, there's been a lot of general talk about how we need more testing, but he's actually talking about how to make it happen and, and how to get more money involved. Well, the problem a little bit, though, is that, you know, look, let's face it, he makes more on off-court non-tennis endorsement fees and things and then then maybe he but certainly most players make on the court and so it, it's a little bit easy for murray to say that they should take the money out you know out of the prize money pool you know i i think when you when you look at how the journeymen have been complaining how big a push there's been to get better prize money down and lower down do you really want to start docking these guys now so you know that raises a question. All right, so you know, do you lop off that extra money out of the winner's paycheck? Well, then it becomes a discussion for the top four, top five players. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I I sort of think it's a bit of an overreaction. It's one of those things. You know, uh, you know. Yeah, sure, it'd be great to have better testing, but is the cost worth is worth it, it? Is it? Is the reward worth the cost? I think most people would say that in the in terms of uncovering, um, you know, possible cheaters that that. There's almost no cost that isn't worth it. So it's. I think that might be one stance from a fan's point that it says, well, that may sympathize with Murray in that regard. Is that? Yeah, Murray said. I mean, he cited cycling. He said, you know, if we want to keep the sport, if we want to keep money in this sport and the sport healthy, you know, we need to spend some upfront to make sure it doesn't. We don't have a reputation. Get a reputation. And cycling's like been irrecoverable. It's just damaged beyond all repair. It, it seems like at this point. I mean, with Lance just the, the cherry, right. the massive cherry on top of everything. So, um, you, you know, going with, with what you said, Pete, that kind of colliding with lower ranked players' ambitions for greater prize money to them. You know, there's only so much to give out here, so that is going to be an issue. I think. Yeah, I don't think you want a witch hunt either. I mean, some of this stuff, like the cycling, it's pretty clear that cycling is a sport you could really benefit tremendously from PEDs. And I don't know that the same is really true of tennis, or it used to not be true of tennis anyway. Nowadays, with seven-hour matches, five-hour matches, you know, maybe it's a little different with the way these guys are playing. But you know, I think that you just have to be careful not to become a witch hunt because then you get to the point where you're saying we're not catching anybody. Let's put more money into so we catch somebody and you're, you're essentially right. you know, creating a whole system for something that you know, exists at a much lower level than you think. So I mean I think they should you – know, we haven't had that many big scandals lately, although we have had fairly significant ones. Peter Kord, a Grand Slam champion. Yeah, and Odesnik's Quirtev, name has popped up again in this Miami document. So that's, you know, that's going to be kind of brought back to the surface again depending on what else comes out of that um, case as well. And of course – um, with Fuentes, correct? And, right, and so there's, right. I think there's more where this is coming from. It, it does seem unlikely that, you know, it, it everything comes off clean in the end here. So we'll see. Um, 
And you mentioned a seven-hour match. We just had one of those. It's 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 almost like it's not a surprise anymore, even though there's <laughs> only been like two of them. But there was one in Davis Cup. Um, there was a doubles match, 24-22. The Czechs over um, Switzerland. Swiss. Davis Cup was pretty busy this weekend. U.S. had a near... Uh, they almost had a collapse to end all collapses, I feel like, in their match. Um, Canada beat Spain. Um did you catch any? I mean, you, you were coming back from Australia, but even if you didn't catch a lot, what were some of the more surprising things that are just really takeaways, I think, from a very busy first round of Davis? Yeah, I saw. I guess the main thing I saw was the Sunday of the U.S., um, the reverse singles, Isner losing and really taking it out on himself in the press conference afterwards, talking about saw his that, atrocious yeah. five set record. The gorilla on his back, right? <laughs> yeah, he doesn't. And he didn't like the Brazilian fans, which didn't, who didn't seem any more obnoxious than any other Davis Cup fans that I could tell. He just didn't, he just, he was, Israel was going honest all the way and just said that they annoyed him and that he feels really bad about his game in, in five setters. So that was another case of, of, of Isner not coming up um, when he needed to. But Sam Querrey did. Sam Querrey had a big Davis Cup weekend. Maybe that's something that can, that can spark him going forward. I'll give you the last word on Davis Cup, Pete. Something dear to your heart. Any, anything else from the weekend or just thoughts in general? I mean, the U.S. is going to get Serbia next, potentially against Djokovic. Um, I'll, I'll leave it to I'll give you the floor here. I think it's great that Djokovic is playing, frankly, you know, and I think it was great. Berdick really stepped up. Granted, he's not a Grand Slam champion, but he's been up very close. And, I, you know, the, the amount of support shown by the top players, top 10 players in general, and even on a case-by-case, you know, tie-to-tie basis, even Federer in the mix sometimes, and Nadal quite often for Spain. You know, I think it's great. And, I, you know, and Berdick made some comments after the match. Anybody could look him up at the Davis Cup website and stuff. And uh, he just talked about both he and Vavrinka after, you know, so they come out, they play this seven-hour match in doubles. After they play singles on Friday, they play a seven-hour match in doubles on Saturday. Sunday, they play best of five, no tiebreaker, fourth decisive, you know, the battle of the number ones, fourth rubber. And, you know, the Berdick wins it in four, so thankfully there's no overtime. But, you know, afterwards, both of them just spoke glowingly about the experience and about playing for the country and, and how it's something that nobody will ever take away, these memories and stuff. And it was just struck me that, you know, if this was like a typical ATP event or even a Grand Slam event, there might have been a little bit of grousing about the format. There might have been complaints about <clears throat> having to play, you know, three days in a row. It's not fair. All these things. But you know, I think certainly at the Grand Slam, that that's a very common thing we hear every year. No, exactly. Yeah, but you know, no, no, you know, they may have those feelings. I mean, if you sat down with Barry and said, "Do you think it's great that you play back to back three three things?" He may say no. But the thing is, at least the things they said, there's no reason for them to you know lie about it or to put spin on this. We're just you know, you know, they like being there. They love they love doing what they were doing. They love playing for their country, and that's that's really the most eloquent testament to Davis Cup. I think was the way those guys reacted to the tie that weekend. Well said. All right. Thank you both uh, for thoughts on a wide variety of topics here. We will meet up again next week, um, talk about see how Rafa did down in Chile, among many other things. Tennis.com podcast. (laughs) Thanks again for listening. You've been enjoying Tennis.com's weekly podcast. Thanks for listening. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com. 